everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. And I'm here with Andrew Vaughn from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We're going to talk about the World Road Race Championships. The women kick off in like eight hours from now, tonight. And then the men are Saturday night in North America and then Sunday, early Sunday morning in Europe. And the race is actually happening Sunday afternoon in Australia. Andrew, do you want to talk about your podcast really quick before we get into the episode? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Spencer. Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how doing hard things builds stronger, more resilient people and how doing hard things can be really fun. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the kind of person who likes to do hard things for fun. So come check us out. You can find us at choosethehardway.com. You can find links to all listening platforms from there. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the other fun places you listen to shows. We're about to drop a new bunch of episodes kicking off with Lindsay Dyer, who is a legendary big mountain skier and activist. That episode's going to be dropping next week. So come check it out. You can find us on social at Hardway Pod and me at Vance. And be sure to check out the episode with Spencer, which is awesome. <laughs> I can't speak to that. There's a lot more uh, accomplished people on the series than myself. So I recommend checking those out. But it could be a good entry point if you like this podcast. Andrew, I was just talking to someone about the men's road race and looking at the profile. This thing is really hard. Um, 267 kilometers, maybe 268. And if you look at the profile, there's nothing special about it. There's one longer climb that's not that steep and then one short climb. It's like 1.1K at around 9%. But they just do the circuit and the town is called Wollongong. I hope I'm not butchering that. I'm sure I am. Just south of Sydney, it's like a beautiful seaside town. Um, makes you want to go there. You watch the races and you're like, why am I not in Australia right now? But this it's just this loop in town. It doesn't look that hard by itself, but they just do it over and over and over again. These circuit races are so difficult. Um, I think this is going to be a super selective race. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a race of attrition. I also would say this race is for the birds, Spencer. This race is for the birds. Um, actually, so it was like, a, I guess, like a humorous situation where Bacamalama was attacked twice, once by a magpie, once by a seagull. I think I don't want to like besmirch seagulls. Not a flock of seagulls, just a single seagull. Yeah. Apparently, this is like a big problem in Australia. Like these birds are really aggressive and there's concern that like they could take out the peloton in the road race. So I hope that doesn't happen. I hope so as well. And it's, I believe it's specifically the magpies. The seagull thing I think was freakish, not quite sure what was going on there. But the magpies, I believe that they have young hatchlings and they're highly defensive of their nests, which I believe are on the ground. And the route passes areas that are densely populated with magpies. So it is a big problem. Swooping is a, a known factor that uh, is a problem for local cyclists or the cyclists are a problem for the magpies, depending on how you look at this situation. Yeah, yeah. They were there yeah. first. So yeah, we're the problem. Yeah, um, we are the problem. It also just goes to strengthen the fact, the argument that Australia is the most dangerous place on the planet and anything will attack you at any moment. Yeah, and they're just lucky there the aren't. Surfers. Yeah, there aren't saltwater crocodiles coming up onto the course. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. at this point, <laughs> that would be unusual because it's way outside their range. And then also, um, yeah, there might be a UCI safety meeting about that in the years following if if someone is taken out by a saltwater croc. But this course is the men's U twenty three road race happened like late last night um, for us in the U.S. I watched parts of it this morning. I was surprised at how, A, the weather was, was pretty bad. It was rainy and looked miserable, but it is a really technical course. I mean, they're like, you're either climbing or descending. There's one kind of highway stretch that's fast, but that's not helping, you know, because you're just whipping through these uphills, downhills, twisty areas. And then it's like full gas once you get on the highway, because anyone who's been tailed off is trying to catch back on. Anyone who's gone off the front, the group is chasing them. So it's really 267K of like A, full gas riding and B, like full concentration. It's going to be like a seven hour concentration contest. That's going to be really difficult. The weather is currently not looking great either. 
I think the women's race is going to be pretty nasty. So just pencil in Mariana Voss to win. Um, I thought the weather on Sunday for the men looked okay. Yeah, it is. It's cloudy. Low chance of, yeah, low chance of precipitation on Sunday. Wind is looking. Uh, there's going to, wind will potentially be a factor. Got winds around seven to 11 miles per hour. Which is not crazy, but that is substantial wind. Yeah, and it, it's, I think that's just going to further like strip. It's not, it's going to be a really hard race to control. Um, I maybe had an idea that like Belgium and Holland are going to have these strong teams and they're going to control the race. And then I watched the earlier races thinking this thing is going to be complete chaos. Um, just try to get as many riders as you can from one team in the last 50K and go from there. And that wind is not going to help a big group stay together. That's for sure. Yeah, and Spencer, something that often happens with major sporting events like this is you often get up-and-coming tech companies who will do something to predict the outcome of an event. And we've got a firm, Decision Inc. in Australia. Looks like they're an AI, artificial intelligence firm. So they've used a combination of AI and machine learning to predict the outcome of the race. And we could... I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look at their the probabilities that they've created for different outcomes because I I kind of think of you as a just like a a human ML uh, betting odds uh, machine Spencer, but um, I found that their predictions to be to be interesting. I don't necessarily agree with them, and of course. We don't know all of the inputs that they created in their model. I do have to wonder if they have taken into account the size of the chain rings that these riders might be using and whether or not they will have a jam chain, which we've seen. Be a, <laughs> we've talk, been talking about this since the beginning of the season. It was really wild to see some of the incidents that happened in the various time trial events thus far. Do you think that that's going to be a factor in this race? Because we are going to have a lot of going in and out of the big and little ring with all of the climbing that's happening in the race. Well, first of all, the yeah, any these AI things are fun. I'm just looking at the predictions now. Obviously, Van Art probably would be anyone's favorite. I, I mean, it has Pogacar too low. It has Matthews too high, in my opinion. I think the thing you have to be really careful about here is so it's it's like thirteen point thirteen thousand five hundred feet of climbing. You might look at that and say, well, that's the same as a mountain stage at the tour. So copy and paste riders who do well at those stages. Well, the climbs aren't long, A, so it's a different type of rider who can do well. And they're so explosive. Like you're going up all the climbs, basically at anaerobic. Like you're watching these U23 races. They are just sprinting up these hills. I mean, it's going to be like full gas all the time. So that makes it really hard to just overlay elevation and then try to predict who's going to win. Um, I think it's going to make it really selective. Like someone like we remember we were surprised Matthews could hang on the climb to, I want to say mend, perhaps it was to, into the mend airport at the tour de France where it's like, that was like one climb, you know, and he's going to have to do that for seven straight hours. I think it's gonna be too hard for him as far as shifting. Yeah. I guess in theory, there will be a lot of shifting from big, to small chain ring, but I, I oft I do kind of wonder, are they just going to stay in the big chain ring? Um, one K at 9%, like I would probably go into the small chain ring, but I'm, I'm wondering if they're just going to be chugging up this thing a lot of the time in the big chain ring. I mean, what, what do you think? Uh, it's just evocative of Crybaby Hill and uh, Tulsa tough, I think Spencer. So you could probably best speak to it, but I think you might be onto something there. And what do you think about a rider Wout Van Aert's size with climbs this size, is he at an advantage or a disadvantage? Uh, actually, funny you mentioned Crabby Hill. I, I never shifted into the small chain ring on that course because I was worried about a drop chain at the bottom of the climb. So I don't know. You're going to see someone jam up and they're probably going to be on a specialized and we're going to be confused. Why is this happening? Um, doesn't bode well for, Rem, poor, for poor Remco. I already feel bad for him for his drop chain that he's going to suffer. Um, wow. Yeah, I, it, it's not great. Uh, we, I mean, we saw it's, it's, this is actually a similar race to GP Montreal, which happened two weeks ago now. Um, I think GP Montreal was a little bit harder because it was shorter, like maybe 40 K shorter. 
similar, if not more, climbing meters. So if he could be in the lead group there, in theory, he'll be in the lead group here. Um, the big advantage he has with his size is, you know, think about going down. He's going to be bombing down. These are like steep vertical descents. So I guess he has an advantage on the downhills. And then also he's just a really good sprinter. I mean, he's one of the best bunch sprinters in the world. So in theory, if he gets to the finish line with the group, he has the advantage. We saw at Montreal, though, he got roasted by Pogacar in that sprint because he was so tired because he's so big and it's so hard for him to get up the climb. So it cuts both ways there. I heard he's not in Tour de France shape, whatever that means. He was maybe the strongest rider I've ever seen in my life at the Tour de France. So it would make sense. He's not always at that fitness. Um, if he was at that level of fitness, though, I think he would be able to handle this like no problem. I mean, he was one of the best climbers when he wanted to be at that tour. So, you know, he has it in him to get up and over these climbs. It just, I think with Wout, it goes back to what's going to happen between him and Remco in this race. And does the Belgian team cooperate? Do they ride for one rider? Is it an instance of we'll see what happens on the day and let the course decide, which I I just don't think is an effective strategy. I don't think that you can go into this event with two leaders. I mean, I guess you need to see who has the legs, but some big egos to play here. Definitely big egos. Didn't work out that well for them last year. I mean, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but I feel like it can work. Um, you just look at like the laps are about 13K long. You know, I would say I Remco went way too early last year, like 150k to go. I still think, you know, he could attack, let's just say 50 kilometers from the finish line. There's around three laps left. I like that for Wout, because then Wout can just sit in. Everyone has to work to pull back his teammate, and then they're tired. So it's either a sprint and he has an advantage, or he gets up and over that last climb in Mount Pleasant about 6k flat to the finish line. I mean, if, if Remco gets reeled in there, Wout could do a counterattack and try to use his time trialing ability to hold off for the last four or five kilometers, which somewhat oddly, I think is his best chance of winning this. Um, he's such a good, we saw, remember was that stage seven, maybe of the tour, maybe it was one of those early stages where he just ripped off the front and then soloed to the win. Cause he was losing bunch sprints. He's so good at those late race attacks. I think, having Remco there could help him as long as they have a plan and you know, Remco's not going to win this in a sprint. So he needs to attack at some point, as long as they're coordinated and they kind of have Remco, they give him like a range, you know, let's say 50 K to 30 K is your time to attack. I think it could work in theory, you know, in, in practice, who knows? I mean, maybe they both want to attack at the same time and they're chasing each other down. We've seen this from like, EF in the last month at, at Maryland Cycling Classic, they had like two guys at the front, like attacking simultaneously, just pulling the group back to each other. That would be the worst case scenario here. And it could happen with these two guys. Spencer, does it concern you when you look at the numerical superiority that the Belgian team has versus Tade's team. So we're looking at eight riders versus six because, of course, we're not going to have Primos there. We're not going to have Mate Mahorich. Um, does that concern you at all, or is team I, size not a factor? I like Tade's position because you look at that team, it's still strong. You know, it's six riders, but realistically, just one leader. Like Tade's at five guys working for him. You look at Belgium. I mean, two leaders, they're going to split those. Like Yves Lampard is working for Remco. He doesn't care about Wout Van Aert. I don't know that for a fact. I'm just guessing because they're teammates during the year. You know, there's split loyalties on a lot of these bigger teams. I think Tade's in a good position. I mean, that's a strong team. Six riders is, is better than two, um, better than one like Sweden has. Um, and they, the, the onus is not going to be on them at any point. You know, Holland's so strong or maybe we call it the Netherlands. I never know which one to say. And Belgium are so strong. They're going to they're gonna control the race. And then think back to like Peter Sagan, his triple run of championships. You never saw him during the race. You know, it was like him and his brother, I think, were the Slovakian team for a lot of those races. And you never saw them. Like world is often won by the riders and the teams that are just tucked away in the field and letting Belgium, Italy, Holland do all the work. And then you pop out 
you're seen for 15 seconds and you win the race. That's traditionally how Worlds is won. So I don't know. I don't think Tade is in. I don't think he's in a bad position at all. In fact, I like that Slovenian team and I like uh, the position they're kind of tucked into at the moment. And Sagan, always the master of saber rattling, has been making some noise in the press this week. He's made some statements about how he'd be happy walking away from his career if he won this world championships. And maybe that would be just the way to put a button on things. And I'm looking at the Slovakian roster. And once again, it is Peter and his brother. And then they got Montes one other guy in there. Stocek. Yeah. Maybe, I've how do you pronounce never it? heard of this person. Okay. Shout out Matas Stocek. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but I think I'm pretty close. But yeah, what do you think? Does Sagan have any chance at winning this race? Well, first of all, Matas, that's awesome. They probably flew, if not private, first class. So this guy gets like a free first class flight to Australia with the Sagan brothers. And I'm sure they're going to stay and have a good time afterwards. So like what a life experience that is for him. Um, No, I mean, he DNF'd. Quebec and Montreal, like you don't have to win Quebec and Montreal to win worlds, but it is a pretty big, um, what do people call that? A bellwether, <laughs> like something that tells you what's going to happen. So I don't like that at all. I mean, Sagan's actually not looked very good at any point all year. He got, you know, top five in a few tour stages, but those were the easiest tour stages. You know, he's not like peak Sagan, like think back to 16, 2016, 17, 18, like would have eaten this course up. This would have been perfect for him. But man, in his current post COVID, he's had COVID like four times. I don't, I just don't see it happening. What, what about you? Very slim chance, but I do get the sense that he's ready to move on to gravel pastures. I think that he's ready to head for Emporia and crack open a Coors Light. Could he not? race like world cup mountain bikes or am i like overestimating his ability i mean he was an outstanding mountain biker earlier in his career i believe he won a world championship as a junior i'd have to fact check myself but i know that he was a very accomplished mountain biker we saw him at the olympics in rio not perform but he was attempting to do a tom pidcock a little too late in his career and we have seen a lot of Riders try to cross over from the road to World Cup mountain biking at the end of their career. I'm going to go way back here, but it's something that Greg LeMond actually attempted to do. Bob Roll, a few other legends of an earlier era, back when (laughs) Norba racing in the United States was actually the highest level of cross-country mountain biking in the world. And then we've seen a few other riders cross over from the road But it seems like a long career on the road and riding things like Grand Tours takes away the snap that you actually have to have to be, you know, a Nino Scherter or a Pidcock type of rider doing those really extreme VO2 max efforts over and over again. Yeah, I guess you're right. And those guys don't mess around. I mean, they're so, they're like machines. I, the thing I have about Sagan is, and well, I guess we'll see, but like, is it possible for anyone to reach the heights that he reached and then tr- transition to gravel and actually do it competitively and to be motivated enough? I, I'm not convinced. Like once you've been like the draw of the Tour de France for years, I, I just wonder if mentally it's too hard to be like, I'm going to go to Emporia and just really care about this. And because you have to be, even though it, this isn't World Cup mountain biking, but you've got to be pretty turned on and like your training has to be dialed to win those races yeah and Sagan's tagline is why so serious yeah and do you think there's a career for him to go around just kind of like you know he he, like he doesn't race them competitively just kind of does them for fun is that viable from a career standpoint for him yeah we call this the Jens Voigt glide slope I think it's totally possible that he could milk his status on the gravel circuit For I think he's got five to ten years of just showing up and riding kind of mid-pack, hanging out. I mean, mid-pack in the pros and uh, getting some sponsor dollars out of that. Probably having a pretty lucrative income. Probably extending his personal product lines with Oakley and Specialized. Yeah, I think he could really do this for a while because he's a hero to many writers in that community. 
Yeah, I, I yeah, maybe I'm just like too plugged in. I don't know. He was my favorite writer for a long time, and I I find his late career decline like hard to watch almost. And I, I, yeah, I have like a hard time explaining. I almost have an aversion to him now because I remember him being so good and so dominant, and just it's hard for me to watch him like tool around. But that's also cool. He still gets paid. He's like the second highest paid cyclist in the world to like do nothing. So that's awesome. I mean, not do nothing, but get no results of any note. He's doing all right. Yeah, I, I support labor over capital any day. So keep getting paid. Um, so your favorite team, your home away from home, the UK, Britain, does not have Tom Pickcock, unfortunately, but they have a this is the team I have like a hardest, I can't find them on my computer. There they are. They have like a hard time wrapping my head around what to expect from this team. And particularly Ethan Hader. Like what is going on with this guy? I was just like, well, he's earlier in the year, like he's a nice writer. He's 24 years old, talented youngster. Yeah. If, if anyone, I, if I find it hard to believe anyone missed the time trial championships at two in the morning on a Saturday, but to some, to sum it up for you, Ethan Hader probably would have won it. Dropped the chain, as you were just saying, and it cost him. He finished like 44 seconds behind or maybe 40 seconds behind. I think he probably cost himself about 40 seconds, if not a little bit more, getting getting the new bike and getting back up to speed. So this 24-year-old, Ethan Hader, not the big, he's not Tom Pickock famous, slightly anonymous, like could have been world time trial champion. I mean, if he can get up and over the climbs, he has a decent chance of winning the world road race. Like, who is this guy? What is going on? Why is Britain producing so many good cyclists? And do you think they have a shot at winning this this road race? I still believe Tade is going to win the road race. I'm highly confident that's going to be the outcome. And yeah, I think that Great Britain is bringing a super strong team and they are producing just really high level of talent. Um, Like, gosh, there are a lot of riders right in line behind Pitcock. We saw a lot of breakthrough performances the past few months. We've got right said Fred. Yeah, Fred Wright, just random right? British guy who's now like the preeminent breakaway rider in the world. Like, where did he come from? I, yeah. I'm, I'm jealous as an American that they can do this. Yeah, and then Ethan Hader. You Ethan know. Hader, Jake Stewart is a damn good rider just on FDJ, just suddenly became one of like the elite small group sprinters. I think this race is too hard for him, but just going forward, that's a guy to watch. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, they have a very strong team. And Ethan Hader, while he did have that uh, that mechanical incident, still demonstrating some really strong instincts around equipment. I noticed that he was running a rim brake bike, I believe, in the time trial. I don't know if that was his backup or primary bike, but uh, we saw Pidcock do that as well at the tour. So... You know, clearly a, a sharp young man and on the rise has the potential to <laughs> to make a mark here. And- learn, is it? I am I am interested <laughs> about that because they don't like they have a guy, Dan Bingham, who cares a lot about time trialing, who sets them all up on their time trial machines. I, I have a hard time believing that's just a mistake or they must have some data that suggests rim brake time trial bikes are faster in some way or at least competitive with the disc brake ones. Yeah, you would think so because like we've seen them get busted out a few times here. Um, so yeah, I think he's sharp. He's got good race instincts. I think that he has the potential to leave a mark in this race. Is he going to win? Probably not, but has some chance of doing so. I did want to talk a bit about the individual time trial world championship, Spencer. And... I thought that you had some really interesting insights as always in the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. One of the assertions you made is that part of what we saw at the world's TT is that Yumbo Visma is now indisputably the world's best organization. It's producing the highest level of time trialists. Enios used to be the organization that was doing this, had the highest attention to detail, the best equipment, and I just I was thinking back about how Yumbo Visma got to this point, and it of course started with a couple of pretty big gaffes in time trials. We had Wout riding into the barriers. You know that you could say that that's just 
Wout having unbridled ambition, going all out. And it was a bit, uh, it was a technical course. The barriers were not probably positioned uh, in the best manner with those feet perpendicular to the barriers themselves, which is how he ended up crashing. And then, of course, we had Primos's tiny helmet incident, which I still think I, it was the helmet was too big. Uh, I, I mean, split on this. I I've, I got to pull up a, a photo of this. Like, I feel like he had this tiny helmet perched on top of his head, like somebody walking around with like uh, an air freshener size cowboy hat. That's what I. That's the visual that I remember. But uh, wow, they've come a long way. So and you really lost, think lost the Tour de France because of. Yeah, a, they did four time trial on stage. They 20. did not great, right? So, what do you think is going on at Enios that they're just not keeping up? And I'm also thinking about Ghana's performance in uh, the world's TT. It seemed like he was a shoe in to win, and he's got his attempt at the hour record coming up, which made me wonder is he on form to actually take the hour record? Did he come in a little bit underbaked to worlds because he knew he had? the hour record attempt coming up or is this just Enios is slipping? Like, what do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I to go back to Yumbo. They were also on very slow bikes back in the day. Remember they had those Bianchi's right. Which, while very green are not very fast. And they switched over to uh, Cervelo. And I mean, their time trialing has really improved since then. They hired Dan Bingham after the, I believe that was after the, Roglic tiny helmet uh, lose the Tour de France thing. Um, so Bingham went there for a year and helped them optimize their setup, who then, interestingly, was poached away by Ineos. Hasn't, I mean, Ineos has had, like, Adam Yates is a pretty good time trialist now. I mean, they have some guys who are good. Um, <laughs> you're sending me the image of the alleged helmet. I still think it's too big. It's falling back. I'm not It's tiny. Of, it's perched <laughs> on top of his head. It's falling backwards. Um, what we're, I'm gonna we're, let's get him on the podcast and ask him what was going on with that. Um, Ghana, I, I've kind of think he's not been in shape all year. I don't know what's going on with him. I'm just looking at his results from the past year. You know, wins the time trial at Torino Adriatico, wins the prologue at Tour of Germany, but at some, I mean, he was great at Etoile de Bessege at Tour of Provence. He did get <laughs> DQ'd for oddly changing a bike midstage. I've been a little underwhelmed with him all year. So I do think it was just him not being on form. And I makes me a little nervous about that hour record attempt. I'm not quite sure where he's going to find the form to do that. But you know, interestingly, with the hour record and with the world's time trial, it's not a lot. It's not as much about watts as you would think. Um, the current hour record holder did it in like fairly pedestrian, with very pedestrian power numbers. So it's more just about. I guess now the thing is like guys are riding on the velodrome in such a way that they're like riding at an angle. So the velodrome's like pushing them along and just making sure to be super arrow the whole time. I mean, you look at the wattage outputs for the individual time trial at Worlds. And I was surprised at how just kind of you wouldn't, if I just threw those watt numbers at you, you wouldn't know who won. Um, everyone's doing about the same. Tobias Voss didn't do any higher watts than the riders he beat. Um, I think it's really just coming down to the efficiency of how you ride the race, your equipment, your CDA. <laughs> if you remember that recent piece in cycling tips, that's, that's all the rage now, like how arrow you are on the bike. And then something I think that doesn't get talked about enough is, I mean, there's 58 turns on that time trial course like that, like how you're cornering and, and making sure you're cornering preserving the highest speed possible must be super important. I mean, the most important part of the race in some respects. So maybe Enios is just not, I, I, I don't have an answer for you, but yeah, they say certainly have slipped in a lot of respects. And I think this is going to be the first year since 2014 that they haven't won a grand tour in a season. So it's not just in time trialing that we're seeing a regression from them. Just looking at the discipline of time trialing, which I know we've talked about a lot this season. I am just perplexed that in pursuit of arrow gains, some of the basics are being overlooked and we're having riders hit the deck over and over again because of drop chains or using possibly because they're using aftermarket chain rings. There've been a couple of pieces this week that 
speculating on the causes of various crashes, some of them blaming equipment. Uh, we've seen now both SRAM and Shimano riders have this drop chain issue with electronic shifting. And I can't help but wonder if more basic technology like mechanical shifting would work better or is this just unavoidable because they're now using these gigantic chain rings. I know Ethan Hader was running an aero coach carbon ring. It was a 58 and it seemed like there was some back channel PR stuff uh, going on between maybe Shimano and Arrow Coach because I think Shimano at this point is kind of tired of being blamed for everything that's happening with its equipment, which demonstrably seems to be the cause of a lot of riders having to stop or lose races this year. Yeah, what do you make of this? Headline. It was like, hater blames Shimano shifters for drop chain. And then you're like, well, I don't, like, yeah, they're, they're riding like comically large dinner plate chain rings that these bikes and these shifting systems were probably never meant to accommodate. On top of that, they're carbon and built for aerodynamics, not for working well. That can't help either. But Haters was weird. I mean, he was riding along in a straight line, not shifting the front ring as, I, as far as I could tell, and just gets sucked. It gets sucked right into the frame. I, 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 my guess is there it's not Shimano's fault because are we, I'm riding Shimano shifters. I'm not just dropping chains left and right. I think it's probably the fact that they're putting these massive, massive chain rings um, onto the bikes. And if they have a small chain ring, you know, do you ever remember this like theory that you're not supposed to, there's like a certain number of teeth you can't drop between. So if you have like a 52, you have to have 36 or larger on the small one. Right. I imagine if some guys are running like 60 teeth front chain rings, I, I don't think they have like a 50 tooth small chain ring. I bet it's still a small, small chain ring. I mean, that's a huge drop for a chain to try to make. So that can't be helping at all. Um, and then, I mean, there's all these theories, right? That it's like old equipment or there it's in it's different model years, but I don't know if that should matter that much. And yeah, my best guess is it's just the chain rings. If there, if you have a carbon chain ring, that's flexing a lot. Um, or it's too rigid. I would imagine that's probably the culprit there. I mean, do you have any theories? Yeah, I think it's likely the gigantic chain rings that are aftermarket. They're likely not as rigid. And one of the stories, I think it was in cycling tips that got into this and the story was speculative. It just more or less said Shimano was not at fault here. It was an aftermarket chain ring. The chain ring is carbon. It doesn't have the same ramps and pins that Shimano rings have. All of those things are true. The question that's not being asked or explored in these stories is why are these riders on 58 tooth chain rings? And I'd have to go back and look at the footage more closely, but I suspect that they're riding the gigantic chain rings because when you have chain wrap around uh, like a, a 10 tooth cog, for example, that actually has, that can cost you like nine watts, if I'm recalling correctly. Because it's and, too tight, right? Yeah the, yeah. the chain wrap is too tight. So the angle of the chain is too tight. So they, what they end up doing is they run a much larger front chain ring and they stay in the middle of the sprocket. And you also have to think, I'm sure there's some drag cost or wattage cost if you have an angled chain versus a more directly aligned chain. And... So that's probably why they're using the gigantic chains in the first place. But that's, I mean, that just strikes me as kind of weird that you have equipment that doesn't actually provide an optimal output from a wattage point of view. And it's just kind of there for design reasons. Like I, I, I could be wrong, but I don't believe you can get a SRAM cassette, for example, for a 12-speed drivetrain with an 11 tooth small cog. Can you fact check me, Spencer? Do you know if that's accurate? Wait, you think it, it's bigger than that, like 12? No, I think you have to start with a minimum of a 10. Yeah. Say that again. SRAM 12 speed. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. SRAM, like they invented this like new technology where they can have a 10. They companies used to not do that because as you said, it's not optimal. But yeah, I don't think SRAM lets you have the 11. I, I do know that there's like, yeah, the main reason they've gone to these big chain rings is so, yeah. So what you're saying, you can run a straight chain and you save something like, let's say 20 watts. Um, and then you can also not be in the tiny 
cogs, but you can still run a big gear that saves you. Yeah. Let's say nine Watts. So you're up close to 30 Watts at that point. Like a crackpot theory I have, this goes back to, I mean, this is like who, no one knows anything like the long femurs. Remember long femurs were hot for a while. Like that's what makes you go fast and time trialing. And then maybe they didn't, we don't really know. Um, everyone used to have like really long cranks. Like you're going out to like 177 cranks. And then now everyone has short cranks, like 165 uh, millimeter cranks, centimeter cranks, millimeter would be too small. Aren't like, that's what everyone's time trialing on because the thought was like, well, you have to have a bigger lever. You've got to be able to just like turn this gear around the the longer, the lever, the easier it is to do. I'm not quite sure for the reason for why they're bringing those cranks in. Maybe it's because it's easier to turn it over. You're turning it less distance. I, I wonder if like going, I've always felt like a bigger chain ring. Um, you could just kind of like push the gear over more efficiently than if I'm running like a 44, you know, like a gravel chain ring and I'm down in a 10, which is I think why SRAM made the 10 so that you could run like a gravel front chain ring. I never felt like a, that was that efficient for me, but this is just feeling and I have no data to back it up. But that's like part of my theory for why these chain rings are getting so big. Are you speaking of the sensations? The sensations, yes. I am I'm yeah. pulling the sensations card of feeling like I'm getting more turnover per like gear inch. But that's just made up. That's me going, this is my long femur theory that I just people need to have so they feel like they're faster. Yeah, and you're right. The shorter cranks initially became popular in triathlon. And the reason they became popular is because they facilitated a more quad dominant pedaling style and they made it easier to rotate your hips forward to get a lower back. And then once you do that, you can hypothetically have a lower CDA. Your leg is also going down a shorter distance. So I think you have a more compact frontal area overall. And, you know, transposing that into pro road racing and time trialing, you're not, I, I mean, that was a trend for a while. I, I knew a lot of people who were road racing who were going probably two and a half centimeters shorter with their cranks. I don't know what was happening in the People's Republic of Boulder, but that was a really big thing in the Bay Area for a while. Every person who went to get a fit was, it's like, oh, you shouldn't be running 175s because the trend used to be you want longer leverage to push a bigger gear and then everything moved in the direction of higher yeah. cadence, right? Yep. And this is us like chasing, like when Lance was riding higher cadence, it's like, you got to have a high cadence. And then Contador was pushing big gears. It's like, you got to be on the big gears. And then Bradley Wiggins is spinning. You got to sit down and spin. Like we're all idiots. No one knows what's going on here. So it's funny. It's funny you say that about the small chain or the small cranks. I had like a teammate who was really good, like national team member on track cycling. He started just bringing his small cranks over to the road, had a lot of success. Um, and then people were like, no, you can't be on those small cranks because you're losing efficiency. You got to go long cranks. And then he, he never really liked it when he had like the standard crank. So he was probably early to the, like his sensations were telling him the right thing that he should have been on a smaller crank because you can tuck into a more aero position as you're saying, because you, you don't have to like compress down as far. Yeah. And another advantage with shorter cranks and the discipline of criterium racing is you can lean over oh, farther. Yeah. Although, uh, coefficient of friction of your tires becomes the limiting factor there at some point, not how far you can lean. Yeah. Yeah. There was this guy, Alan McCormick, he still lives in Boulder and he would just like run tiny cranks and pedal through every corner and win every crit. He, he uh, claimed that was the reason, but could just be he was a really good rider. So before everyone falls asleep with this tech talk, who's your pick for the world championship? And then say so pick a winner, pick an outsider, and then pick a non-winner, like do an anti-pick. Yeah, okay. My winner is Tade. My outside pick is Fred Wright. And... It's my third one, my non-winner. Yeah, who is not going to win? I, I think like good. Yeah, not going to win. I've been getting a lot of inbound about this writer, and I know that you have stated on the record that you don't think they have a snowball's chance of doing uh, anything remarkable in this race. I think 
So Keegan Swenson was racing mountain bikes at the Lifetime Series last week and is now in Australia. I think he was there maybe a day or two in advance of the race. And uh, so hard on your body. It's unbelievable. It's like it's insane that he's doing this, but he was in line for the lifetime grand prize. So which I don't I don't know what the payout is. I think it's like 50 grand, but that's nothing to sneeze at. So good on him for getting out there. He had an unfortunate mechanical before the end of the mountain bike race that he did last weekend. So he ended up getting fourth, I think, but still top rated in the overall lifetime gravel series. He's now undoubtedly, well, actually, I'm speculating. Who knows? Maybe he flew business. Maybe he has uh, a patron who took care I of guess his. I was thinking about that, but wouldn't. So it's 25 grand to win the Lifetime Grand Prix. So then if you're shelling out 12 G's for a business class ticket, you're like, un, like the, it starts to step down like 5K. So it's like, would you not have just, I don't know. Maybe some right. me, yeah. Maybe as a patron who's just like, hey, I have a lot of points. I'm going to fly you business class. I, I wouldn't be shocked if that happened. Yeah, we're speculating, but I've known other elite American writers. There are a lot of people in finance and tech who are huge fans of cycling. Uh, Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, is one of them. He's really into cycling. I don't know Kevin personally, but I do know he's he's a big fan of cycling and um, trains a lot. I'm not saying that he's done this. I'm just saying that there are people out there who could do something like that. I don't know if that happened for Keegan. We don't know how Keegan got to Australia. I hope he's, he's there. Class is all. I just <laughs> I worry for. Him. <laughs> There's no way he flew economy and then is racing this. Yeah, I just I think he flew. I think he flew coach. He had a middle seat, and he probably had a crying baby next to him, and he had. Uh, he probably didn't even have a bag of peanuts because somebody on an international flight is definitely going to have a peanut allergy. So I don't think you can do that anymore. But I think that Keegan is highly motivated to get the best contract possible with the world tour team. And I just think that financially what it would take for him to walk away from the program that he's set up in gravel is substantial. But I don't think that uh, world tour teams maybe associate the level of financial value with him that he associates with himself. Therefore, I think he wants to do something in this race to show that like this is something I can actually do. As you pointed out, Spencer, the idea that uh, someone who has never done a world, world tour race, and I believe that Keegan's biggest achievement as... A road cyclist, I believe, is that he won the Utah State Championship. I only know that because it was on the Trainer Road podcast. They work with Keegan. And they're they're very bullish on his prospects. Like they've been hyping it up like it's uh <laughs> Sylvester Stallone movie and he's gonna like walk out there and he's gonna like get off that coach flight right out on the course and just like solo to a win. I'm perhaps joking. But not that much. I don't think that he can do that, but I think he's going to try to make a move. I don't think it's going to work, but I think we'll see him at the pointy end of this race at some point trying to make some noise. I would what agree I, with you yeah. if this was like tour down under or something like that where you can use, because he's a very good rider. You know, he's very talented. He's, he's much better than his best career result being a Utah state championship win. Um, I just think it. this is more, it's almost like a concentration test and a skill yeah. test. I mean, normally at Worlds, there's like 50 winners, there's 50 finishers, 60 finishers, and close to 200 starters. So if he could finish the race, I mean, that, in my opinion, that's like massive. But I don't know how much that's going to move the needle. Like 45th would be, oh my God, this guy is incredible for me. But is that going to be recognized with like a world tour contract? It probably should. You know, do you, do you think that's what he wants to do? He wants to go race world, like a uh, world tour road cycling. I believe he said that on the record that he's open to doing that. Unlike Colin Strickland, who turned his back on the potential to go race for EF. And I, you know, if you recall the reason that Colin walked away from that and he stated this in a number of interviews is just the money wasn't enough. He was making more with his program. Of course, Hindsight being twenty twenty and things having worked out the way he did, I uh, he may be rethinking that decision. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
they probably uh, offered him the minimum. I assume they offered him yeah. like 44,000 euros a year or something. And he thought, why would I do that? Yeah. And 360 servings of Soylent. Uh, for Keegan, I feel like Keegan might have his sights set on that. I mean, if you look at someone like Sepp Kuss, um, a contemporary of his in the mi- mountain biking scene, um, Keegan's a bit older, but not that much. If you look at what Sepp has been able to achieve, and the financial reward that he's gotten from doing that. If I'm Keegan Swenson and I'm looking at gravel in America and I mean, he's had to the entire season chase, like go do some pretty brutal races to try to ultimately get a payday of like, I think around 50 grand and you have the opportunity to maybe go over to Europe. He could potentially be a climbing domestique and, Spencer, you know the ins and outs of that better than I do, but if he actually could move around in a pack, which would be the big litmus test, I think, I think he could do pretty well and make some serious money. So I don't know why he wouldn't be thinking about that, but what do you think? And he could make a lot of money. If he's really that good, it probably is a little old. He's 28. Yeah, he's a little long in the two. He's a little younger. I mean, you yeah. can make a lot, of, a lot of money as a climbing domestique, seven figures for sure, without having pressure to win a race. Yeah, I don't know. If this was like rainy, if they were doing it tomorrow and it was a rainy course and he got in the early breakaway, I mean, that would be the key to him pulling off. Like I remember, I forget who it was. It was the Cutter World Championships. Uh, some like no name rider, I think, got in the breakaway and then the breakaway got caught, but the Peloton was so destroyed by the time they caught him that it was like a 15 man lead group and then he was just in the lead group. And then finish with them. I mean, that would be like the, that's how that would play out. Um, you just kind of sneak away early. You hope that the weather's really bad so that because normally at worlds, when you get swept up by the Peloton there, it's just the level is so high. You're just spit out the back, but yeah, I don't know. It, It would have some funky stuff would have to happen for him to stand out here. I wonder though, I don't know, puts up a decent result. What if he's the top American finisher? Does someone take a chance on him? for next year um like i don't know yeah i just don't like ef for him because i feel like they won't they'll make him do the gravel races you know they won't really respect him as a road racer but i'm just trying to think of like a funky team like bike exchange picks him up you know could he with a year of racing under his belt what could he do something like that um but yeah road racing especially at the world tour level is so skill-based that it's hard to break into at that age not saying he couldn't do it it just is really difficult yeah, and a name we haven't mentioned yet on this episode is Matthew Vanderpool. If you look at Matthew Vanderpool, Tom Pidcock, and Wild Van Art, they are riders who came from an off-road background into the sport of road racing, very quickly performed at an extremely high level, but they didn't do it in the first race they ever did at the World Tour level. No. And, they're, and they're generational talents. Keegan, you're incredibly talented, but you're not Matthew Vanderpool. No, no, he's not. Keegan, I want to, I want to directly address you right now. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, Vanderpool, actually, I'm glad you bring him up. I was talking about someone I could not get a, get a read on this year was great at the Giro. Um, probably didn't get as many wins as he should have really stressed himself by, seemed like he was in every mountain breakaway in that third week was really wiped, was just like a shadow of himself for the tour just kind of disappeared for a while. I did like hear about him training in some, there's like this amazing Spanish. Do you remember this guy? He sold Liege best only age, uh, Alexander Kolbenev. And I guess he took the money. This is all like alleged by the way, but he took money and set up a Spanish like training hotel. And it is unbelievably nice. And I hear that's where Vanderpool's been hold up training for worlds. He's come out, he won the three races in a row didn't win mixed relays at worlds, but that just, that's just him getting off the plane, getting used to being there. I think, I think he could be a contender here, especially on this type of course. That's if the lead group is worn down and he attacks with 30 K to go, 20 K to go. If you remember like Matthew Vanderpool was Remco before Remco, um, the king of the devastating late attack, he, he could, uh, he could pull a vintage Vanderpool here and win this race. I, I would not sleep on that. Vengeance is in his favor. Wait, say that again. 
Vengeance, vengeance is in his favor. Like I think he like feels vengeance like some Dutchman. I'm like I, I don't know this one. <laughs> not vengeance, the Dutchman, and not uh, the now retired specialized aerodynamic bicycle known as the Venge. Yeah, I think that he feels aggrieved and has something to prove, and I think that that favors him. He's a highly emotional rider. Doesn't always work out. We've seen him. I hate to say choke because he's a generational talent and I think a living legend, but we've seen him make it to the end of some very important big races, including the world championships and not deliver. But Spencer, you asked me the question of like, give me a winner, give me a loser, give me an outsider. Uh, I want to flip it over to you and then it's probably time to wrap it up. So who have you got? Yeah. So I mean, I, I like Tad A. I think we're both on the Tad A train for winning. Um, outsider, I, I like Dylan Van Barl, Matthew Vanderpool's teammate, because Vanderpool's so good. You know, if Van Barl gets up the road, who's gonna, who in their right mind would chase him with Vanderpool and Van Art in the wheels? That's not a very smart move. So Vanderpool or Van, yeah, Van Barl has like, the great card to play there. We saw him get, he could, and this is like the best rider that no one talks about. He got second at Worlds last year, second at Flanders, first at Roubaix. I mean, the guy is incredible and like races over 260 kilometers. He's one of the best riders in the world. I like him a lot as an outsider. Unfortunately, this hurts me to say my, the rider I'm ruling out, I'm taking off the chessboard is Biniam Gourmet. I'm looking yeah. at his, his Airtrain team is really strong, actually. I think at some, it was a, Giro stage this year where him and another Aaron Trader rider were both in the top 10. I mean, it's like a secretly strong cycling nation. I just, I worry about his schedule a little bit. Flying to, uh, not France, to Quebec racing, flying back to Europe when everyone else went on to Australia because you minimize your overnight flights that way. Continuing to race and then flying to Australia, I think that's a little a little too hard on your body. Um, and the course might be a little bit too hard for him. Like if you think of those mountain stages where Vanderpool is in the breakaway, those were like the only stages at the Giro where I thought that he was just like definitively better than Gourmet. Um, and I think this race is going to be more similar to those than those like reduced sprints we saw um, him do so well in at the Giro. So I'm, I'm going to take him off the chessboard and then I, I might even throw in michael matthews there too I, I i'm a little confused why he's such a favorite here i think this course is just a little bit too hard for him and what's your viewing strategy so yeah i've thought a lot about this i think i'm just gonna i gotta do it live because i'm not gonna be able to sleep knowing the race is happening so it's a little bit easier for me than for you i think it starts at like 6 p.m so it's more of like a normal sporting event um and it finishes at like midnight to one. So I could feasibly stay up and watch it live, but that's going to be a little bit tof- tougher on these coast. Yeah, that is going to be tough, but I'm ride or die. I'm in. Are oh, you doing it? You're doing it live. I'm going live. Nice. I mean, and then it's over and then total free Sunday that you have back. So it's not all negative. Right on the Swift be- two hours later. Absolutely. I don't know if I've ever had like an adult beverage while watching a bike race. So this can be a first for me. It's always a first. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Do you have anything else to share before, before we take off? I think that this is going to be a fantastic world championships, even though we have a diminished field. I think that road cycling, I was just, I was working on an essay about this today, actually. And I've just been thinking a lot about what's happening with gravel. We, of course, have the Gravel World Championships coming up in two weeks, which we haven't talked about, and it might be interesting to do an episode about. <clears throat> I just It's wild to me that we, we talked about Sagan on this episode. I think that Sagan is probably heading in the direction of gravel. You know, Maybe he hangs on for one more season. Is he going to do anything after this world's remains to be seen? And we have Keegan Swenson coming from the world of gravel, showing up at this race, coming straight out of that middle seat and coach to compete. That's pretty wild. Like it's not something that I would have uh, seen coming in 2004 when I first heard about trans Iowa and Jeff Kirkovi and guitar Ted who invented that race and kind of put together one of the first gravel races uh, in the middle of the Midwest back in 2004. So 
Gravel's come a long way. Lots of interesting factors here. Keegan almost reminds me at this point of this is like a John Tomac moment for him is kind of how it feels to me. I don't know if you remember when John Tomac, who was a highly accomplished professional BMX rider, then cross country mountain bike racer, also a highly accomplished downhill mountain bike racer, crossed over onto the road and um, rode for the 7-Eleven, then Motorola teams for a few seasons. But I'm wondering if that's what we're about to see. And it's a really interesting moment in the history of gravel right now, I think. So I think that's what's on my mind, as well as Primoz Roglic's tiny helmet. Spencer, what's on your mind? I mean, it is amazing what Keegan, the fact that Keegan's even here is almost unbelievable. I can't believe that USA Cycling did it. I guess they only did it because they were painted in the corner because everyone was wiped. I'm not quite sure why I haven't had like totally a re- time to reflect on that. Like, was this a harder season than most? Like what's going on? But the fact that, you know, Quinn Simmons just was not in a physical place to be able to make the track and to have a competitive race that they just didn't have anyone left to select and they selected him. Um, it's very cool. I'm, I'm also noticing you mentioned gravel world championships. I tried to just Google it really quick to see the start list. And I like to see the gravel worlds, the race in Lincoln, Nebraska that calls itself the gravel world championships comes up first ahead of the UCI gravel world championship. So that is wonderful to see. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I, I am a little, actually a little like fearful for gravel. I don't like that. It's becoming too mainstream. Um, like is, is, is Peter Sagan going to gravel world championships? Is it just going to become like a, a fall Strata Bianchi, which would be cool, but maybe perhaps a little disappointing to some of the ride or die gravel people. I think in aggregate cycling's on the rise and we're going to see it with the Netflix Tour de France series. And I agree with you. And this is the essay I was working on today was about the spirit of gravel. And I've been, we've talked about it a lot here, but I've been reflecting on what's happening with the sport. And it's just an inevitability at some point when you have a start line, a finish line and money and status are on, or what's at stake, things are going to change over time. And we have some serious hitters coming to these races now talents going both ways between gravel and road cycling. And I think all of these things will serve to get more and different people into the sport, which I think is awesome. And bike racing has been on the decline for a while in the United States. It was disappointing to me to see the best buddies team fold this week, because I think that turns criterium racing into one pretty professional team. And then a bunch of amateur teams, which, um, I think is, is challenging for the level of competition overall in the sport. Um, but I think that there are a lot of signs that competitive cycling is on the upswing, which is great. And I want to see more and different professional teams and criterium racing and all other disciplines. So I think anything that gets more people excited about bike racing is fantastic. Oh yeah, you're, you're right. Um, we'll do like an off season podcast about the criterium situation and best buddies. It's, it's a, it's pretty unfortunate actually, but as you were talking, I remembered we didn't uh, mention the women's race that is on tonight, like Friday night in the U S um, I'm going to watch it just because I'm interested to see who wins, but it's also, if you are just really into the course, it's good. It's like cool to get to, to see how it plays out before the men's race the day after. So it's a great, kind of a unique thing. You don't often get to see. Uh, like the course raced at speed before another race. So if you're like really, if you're financially invested in who wins the men's race, it's good to watch the women's race. Um, you can learn a lot from it. And right, there's and an it's, American, it's Kristen Falk sorry. could win. I was going to say there's an American who potentially could win, unlike yeah. the men's race where it's hard, harder. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a, a fantastic race and it's probably a topic for another podcast, but so many exciting things happening in women's cycling, a lot of drama, uh, just in the past week with time trial worlds and a number of other things, but, um, just like a lot of really powerful narratives and storylines happening there as well. So that race should be a don't miss affair for everyone listening as well. And, and if it rains, 
give it to Mariana Voss. Do you know how many times she's finished first or second at the road race world championships in her careers in her career? Tell me Spencer nine times. That's crazy. That's wild. That is unbelievable. So excited to see if she can get what I think is maybe her last chance at a world title. So that would be pretty cool to see, but thanks Andrew for joining us and we will be back next week to talk about the, the race after it happens and then kind of poke into some of the chit chatter on gravel worlds. I was disappointed. We couldn't do it. I thought, Oh, that'd be fun if we went and did it and talked about it on the podcast, but no, it is just for, for professional riders, unfortunately, but it's great to have you and thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to uh, seeing how these races shake out. So we'll be back next week to talk about what happens. Yeah. I think we were maybe too, too negative about the, diminished start list perhaps now that these are getting closer i'm realizing how how many good riders there are and how good this course is so i'm back to being excited about world championships likewise